the Murder Mystery Podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's the Parisian Contract. Episode 6 Olivia receives a message the next morning from Francine Bennett, who has just landed at Charles de Gaulle Airport and is in a taxi on the way to the centre of Paris. Over her breakfast in the restaurant of the hotel, Olivia ponders her best plan to the approaching storm. Francine is one of those people who always seems annoyed. Could that be true, or was it just Olivia's defence mechanism kicking in? She knows that all people approach discussions with objectives. Sometimes they are subconscious, sometimes they are just fait accompli. People only act in certain set ways, she knows. DNA and childhood define what we all do. Patterns once established are repeated with different nuances throughout our lives. Francine can't be genuinely annoyed all the time. Presumably, she has a private life, where she has chosen people and things that make her happy. Or at least not angry. Olivia's advocate training kicks in too. What does Francine want, above all? Status is the word that immediately springs to mind. Then control. Then power. Many people want those things, but Francine has adopted a blunt tool approach to getting them. She must have got effective results from this style of hers. Or she wouldn't continue it. Olivia moves to a larger table by the window and gets out her laptop. Francine's taxi draws up ten minutes later, and the woman gets out. She is overdressed in the business sense. Fussy clothes when modern business attire has moved on to be simpler and less status-driven. Francine appears at the doorway, and a waitress shows her over to the table. Arsley journey, she spits out. Don't like the city? Not when it stops me travelling quickly. Francine drops into a chair opposite Olivia. Have you eaten? says Olivia. On the plane, dreadful process muck, says Francine. The food is good here. Olivia raises her hand, and a waitress appears seamlessly. Francine chooses an omelette and coffee. I didn't know you were flying in. No, last minute. I had a chat with Richard last night, and he's concerned we're getting nowhere on the Alpha deal. So I said I'd come over and buck things up. Any news from Max? says Olivia, trying to regain the agenda. What? says Francine, frowning. No? Should there be? Well, he disappeared mid-contract and is incommunicado. Don't you think that's odd? says Olivia, opening her eyes slightly. I do, but he's gone now. I'm acting, CFO. You said... Let's focus on the case in hand, says Francine, bluntly. What do we know? Olivia sighs inside. We know that Glenthrow made a bid for Alpha without informing anyone. Grace Hartford is leading from their side. Not relevant, says Francine. What isn't? Hartford. And you know that because, says Olivia. We need to look at Malneath. CEO. And yet Hartford is leading it. I just said, ignore Hartford, says Francine, with confidence. Why? 
I'm CFO, and therefore the board representative with executive powers on this contract. I don't buy it. Don't buy what? Says Francine. Hartford is involved. But I talked to her. She looks shocked. Olivia waits for her hand grenade to explode. Francine should notice that Olivia said to Richard that she hadn't spoken to anyone in Glenthrow. Olivia waits. No reaction. That means only one thing. Francine already knew that Olivia had spoken to Grace before this meeting. That also explains why Francine arrived today without notice. Just enough time between Olivia's chat with Grace yesterday to feed through to get a reaction. Olivia now knows one thing absolutely. Grace and Francine are somehow connected, and Grace is involved but doesn't know everything. But who else knows? Richard? Jean-Luc? The story is not getting clearer in Olivia's mind, but the players are all playing their games, thinking she won't see through them. Find Malneath, root him out, and give him a full treatment, says Francine. Tell him his action is illegal and tell him today. The older woman drops the side of her hand on the table with each word. Olivia sidesteps. What are you doing today, Francine? Meeting anyone? I'm seeing Dubois at ten. Don't have a lunch. Unconnected. Tell me what he says, says Olivia. You need to sort it, Livy. Richard was quite clear with me. Your neck is on the line on this one. Olivia remains silent. She is too used to watching criminals in court, trying to create a false narrative. Then we'd better both get going, she says. I need to make a call. I'll see you later. Olivia shuts her laptop, gets up and walks away. She leaves the hotel, but with no intent of meeting David Malneath. Captain Farreau had left a message on her phone to say he wanted to talk to her again, following Chris's court appearance in Madrid, as the Spanish prosecutor's office, the Ministerio Fiscal, needs some background information on her brother. Olivia takes the metro from Rudebach to Madeleine, and walks to the headquarters of the Régional de Police Judiciaire de Paris, en rue de Saucer. She waits for fifteen minutes in the grand reception, before Foucault collects her. They go to a tiny office on the third floor that looks out over the scattergun landscape of Parisian buildings at the back. Ferrault goes to get coffees, and Olivia hopes that this meeting will be very quick. Thank you for coming in, mademoiselle. He returns with two cups. No problem. Are you enjoying your time in Paris? He says. Of course, she smiles politely. But I am very busy today. How can I help you? Let's see, he says, and opens an untidy paper file that he brought back from the coffee journey. It is marked Monsieur Christophe Street. Olivia waits patiently. A minute goes by. How did the court hearing go? She says eventually. Pardon? Chris was in court, you said? Oui, oh, yes he says. The judge listened to the arguments from the Policia Nacional and the prosecutor's office in Madrid. And? 
The judge, says the Capitan, considers that Christophe should be convicted, as the evidence is so compelling. He was in possession of three packets of cocaine, and making his way from Marseille to Lisbon. What, as a drugs mule? says Olivia. No, mademoiselle. There are no borders to cross. He was just carrying it in his luggage, quite openly. There are no customs posts, of course, so he was not concerned. How did the Spanish police know to stop him in that case? She says. We tipped them off as we have been watching him for some time. Because of the drugs? We and he's involved with other criminal activities, illegal raves and gatherings, says Ferro. That sounds like him. She only half jokes. In her heart, she can't get over his wasted life. She should, as a good sister, be able to accept him for what he is, come what may. But she can't. He has thrown his life away, and she regrets that, on his behalf. He tried rehab twice, but he only lasted a couple of weeks each time before he was back. She wonders why the humans on Earth now have come through thousands of years of evolution to still have a gene that makes them addicted to things. The humans without the ability to be addicts must have died off centuries ago, but why? Her own addictions have been of no consequence. Her phone, coffee and love all had the ability to make her feel happy, but only for a short time, and all ended in damage of some sort. So, how can I help? She says. As the judge is considering sentencing, she would like to know Monsieur Street's background a little more. What sort of support network he has in place? What sort of family is there to be there for him? Olivia's brain is spinning out of gear as the seconds tick by. There's no one, is her first response. No one? repeats the policeman. He looks up at her. She can't think what to say that will help Chris. She guesses that the more a family are present to help someone who is an addict, the less the sentence. But maybe it will be the wake-up call to make him change, once and for all. Get off the drugs. Start to be someone who she can be proud of. She remembers the little boy who played with her in her childhood and the sound of his laughter. She remembers the endless days of summer. Freedom of cycling and sand between their toes. Her heart aches for a time less responsible. Mademoiselle? She has woken from her memory ride. The policeman waits. There's no one. She says quietly, feeling her eyes water. And Pharaoh writes on the paper in front of him. By the time the police interview is over, it is midday and Olivia wants to do something work-related and forget about her brother. She takes a table on the pavement at a café around the corner from the judiciaire and orders crepes and a glass of Sauvignon. She examines her notebook and draws out four diagrams of the possible relationships between everyone she has met since arriving in the city. On each diagram, she writes down statements that each have said that summarise their perspective. This allows Olivia to see which pairs of people could be aligned. 
Almost everyone could be in cahoots with everyone else, but certain patterns are emerging. Francine and Grace she noted earlier. Also, Jean-Luc and Guy seem to know more than they are saying. The loners seem to be Richard and, of course, Max. He is the person who she knows least about, but he seems to hold the key to the whole story. The news about the man he had run over in London seems to have been brushed aside by everyone. Did that have a connection to the Alpha deal? And did it have a connection to Camille Dubois' disappearance? It annoys her throughout lunch that she can't contact Max and must wait for him to get back to her. She thinks about Camille. Her parents don't seem worried enough. If Poppy had gone missing at twelve years old, Olivia would have been distraught, and she doesn't even consider herself to be a great mother. Any mother would kill to protect her children, but Jean-Luc and Sophie seem numb. Maybe it hasn't sunk in yet, she thinks, trying to justify their weak emotional response. Her phone buzzes a message. She expects Francine. But it's from Guy. How's the investigation? It says. She thinks about the story that she needs him to believe is true. Going well, she types. I'd be interested to talk over dinner, he returns immediately. She needs more information and goes back with, Sure. Tonight? She replies with a thumbs up. I'll book somewhere. Great, she messages. Cool but decisive. She likes herself like that. She needs to see Jean-Luc and goes to the Montgomery building. He is out. But Marianne lets Olivia use the meeting table in his office, and the assistant brings her coffee. How long have you worked here? says Olivia. Two years. You like him? Jean-Luc, oui, says Marianne. What sort of man is he, would you say? A businessman? Olivia smiles at Marianne's defence mechanism. Like all good assistants, mutual dependency breeds loyalty. An honest businessman? Of course, says the woman. Why, of course? Why shouldn't he be? Olivia changes tack. What about Guy Lanchester? You like him? You must have seen him a lot, as he works closely with Jean-Luc. The French woman doesn't answer. Would you trust him? Guy, she says, in the French way. A second passes between them. The Parisian air drags hot about the city. Perhaps we should talk outside of the office, whispers Marianne. What are you doing now? says Olivia. Not today. The silence is deafening. The women stand six feet apart, but connected with an invisible cord, something Olivia hadn't foreseen. So many words said without a word being spoken. Suddenly the office door bursts open and Jean-Luc rushes in. I have a note, he says, holding an opened letter and envelope. Look. He hands Olivia the letter and she reads. Marianne dissolves into the background of the other's consciousness. So it is kidnap, she says. 
It seems so. There's fear in his voice. Read it out loud. Let me translate. If you want to see her again, keep quiet and wait. In two days we will be in touch again. What shall we do? asks the Frenchman. Tell the police? It says keep quiet, says Jean-Luc. It doesn't say not to tell the police. What else does keep quiet mean? If they had meant you not to tell the police, they would have said so, surely, she says. He is silent, thinking. She waits and walks to the windows. She has always loved a horizon and lets her eyes relax into the distance. The traffic is barely audible. The utter stillness of the room, jarring with the silent hubbub of movement, within the view she is looking at. We don't tell the police, he says, eventually. She turns to him. As you wish. She changes the subject. Did you get those car owners from your police friend? I did, he says. Goes to his desk and holds up a set of stapled sheets. Here. She takes them and flicks through the pages. Sixteen owners in Paris of black Renaults with a plate containing four S.E. We should go and visit them all. How long would that take? A day or two, she says. That's too long. Too long for what? I mean, the sooner we can find her, the better. The more of us looking, the quicker it'll be, says Olivia. He nods emphatically. I can ask Sophie and Marianne. With you and me, that's four addresses each. Jean-Luc goes out to tell Marianne about the plan and to ask her to call Sophie. Then he returns. Coffee? Please, says Olivia. He puts his head back around the door and confirms with Marianne. Jean-Luc, I wanted to talk to you. Okay. Let's sit. She moves towards two chairs near his desk and they sit down. I wanted to ask you about your past, she says. He visibly tightens. Shouldn't we be focusing on Cammy? We are. Look, kidnap is not done by normal, everyday people. Or normal, everyday businessmen and women. All crime is only committed by a small number of people in society as a whole. Crime is only entered into if all of one's legal options have been tried and have failed. Or someone is inherently criminally minded and sees crimes as just normal and has no respect for the law. Have you given that speech before? To every client who I have had who has considered going outside of the law, yes, she says definitively. And how is it relevant here? he asks. When I asked you about your past, you seemed less than relaxed the other day. I have met dozens of businessmen like you. Most are only too eager to talk about their great business achievements. But not you. I can go through my resume for you again. I don't mean that, and you know it. What do you mean, then? He's getting frustrated. I mean, who are the people you have dealt with? Tell me about the mergers or the deals you've done. Ones where you knew the other parties had the potential for working 
on the edge of what is legally allowed. How is this helping us? he says. It's simple. One of those people who you met and did business with and left damaged is trying to make you do something and they want you to do that something so much that they're willing to break the law. Now, unless you have a list of dozens of potential candidates for that, it's my guess that there are two, maybe three only, who you already know who could be behind this. Marianne opens the door with the drinks. She walks across the office and puts down the cups. Olivia and Jean-Luc are silent. As she places the second cup, Marianne catches Olivia's eye. They lock their gaze for a full second. The young woman's eyes plead with Olivia, but the lawyer can't translate the look in the time before the assistant turns and retreats to the outer office. Jean-Luc is the first to speak, slowly, as though he has decided something in the intervening minute. There were a couple of people like that. Olivia nods, but says nothing, waiting. A deal in Brussels, but I was only an analyst. Go on, she says. A takeover by Montgomery of a small specialist mining hardware company. I did the financial analysis and due diligence on the prospective purchase. And? They were a shell company, says Jean-Luc. The mining equipment was a front. Their business was arms sales to militia across the world. A lot to Africa and South America. Never large shipments, but over time they had provided a huge number of arms. Everything from Kalashnikovs to rocket launchers. And did your analysis reveal this to the Montgomery directors at the time? She says. Yes, and we pulled out. And the target company blames you? Maybe, says the Frenchman. Any others? Not like that. A couple of companies who had some poor or false accounting. But it was incompetence, not criminality. Olivia gets up and collects her laptop from her bag. She asks Jean-Luc for the name of the company and the key players and searches for them all. Jean-Luc leaves her to get on with it. He sits at his desk and goes through emails. After 15 minutes, she has found little. The CEO you mentioned, Arthur Randolph, was indeed charged with an offence two years ago in Brussels. False accounting, so fraud. He's in an open prison in Belgium. Could that be him? It could be. We can run a check on him, she says. I have international clearance so I can get Belgian court papers and a report on his businesses, as he's inside. Great, do it, says Jean-Luc. She sends the emails, then remembers something Jean-Luc said outside the school with Sophie. Can I ask something else? She says. More? She smiles at him. I'm on your side, Jean-Luc. I'm the one you can trust absolutely. Even if there's no one else. He waits. You said that you had a run-in with the police a couple of years ago. I did. No charges, though. A misunderstanding. Tell me about it, she says. 
An anonymous report was made to them about funds that had gone missing in Montgomery. A whistleblower? Yes. Who was it? We never found out. So they could still, I guess, he says, too quickly. What was the accusation? says Olivia. Funding for an investment, five million euros. It couldn't be found. It had come out of a Cayman Islands account and never arrived. What were you accused of? Taking the five million for myself, says Jean-Luc. Was the money ever recovered? No. Help me understand, she says. Five million is lost and the company shrugs it off like it was just the cost of a dinner at a good hotel. We looked, but there was no trace. He seems too casual, she thinks, as though he has switched from actually being relaxed to acting out being relaxed in the last few seconds. She considers maintaining pressure on him, then rejects the idea. One of her grandmother's sayings flashes into her head. If the truth is not seen today, guilt will force it out tomorrow. She takes a sip of coffee and watches him pretending. A later message from Guy says to meet at Le Sanc restaurant on the Avenue Georges Sanc. She googles it before she leaves and wears her red dress as it seems fitting. She has langoustine breton, lamb, asparagus and turbot. Over dinner he is charming and they talk about themselves. She finds herself sharing a little too much about herself for her own comfort. They emerge from the grandiose interior. It is 10.30. Shall we walk? He suggests. She puts her arm through his. He doesn't react. They walk up to the Champs-Élysées and turn left towards the Arc de Triomphe. Paris's busiest street is nearly deserted. The expensive shops are dark inside, but their windows glow with carefully planned light shows. She has become increasingly relaxed in his company during the evening, but still has suspicions about Guy. She has not broached the topic of grace with him tonight, as she needs time off and some brain space. They walk in silence some of the time, talked out, but also in their own thoughts. They take the Avenue de Lena and head towards the river. He stops them walking. I have an apartment near here, he says. Do you? I don't know if you wanted to come in. You're right, she says flatly. What? You don't know if I want to come in. She smiles, and he does too. Perhaps too slightly. There's a pause. I have a lot to do tomorrow, she says finally. I need my beauty sleep. Of course. They look at each other, each giving the other the chance to change their mind. But neither does. He walks out to the edge of the road and hails a cab. Your carriage, madame? Thank you for a lovely evening, she says. My pleasure. Maybe we can... He doesn't finish the sentence. Maybe we can, she says, and kisses him on both cheeks. Good night, Guy. A taxi picks up speed and leaves him standing by the curbside.